and welcome to another Mind and Money podcast. I'm Becky O'Connor, Head of Pensions and Savings at Interactive Investor, and I'm joined by Greg Davis of Oxford Risk to discuss a topic that's oh, it's a little bit controversial, a little bit sensitive, comparing yourself to others and how it affects your money management, financial planning. Is it something that we just can't help or is it something that we actually need to be able to control a little bit in order to get the best out of our money and do the right thing for ourselves and our families. And I know this is a topic that Greg has lots of views on. So Greg, I wonder if we could start by just asking the question, is comparing yourself to others avoidable? Hi, Becky. Um, no, no, I genuinely don't think it is. As humans, we are inherently social animals and a large part of where we get our our self-worth, our self-esteem comes from comparison to others in our social group. It comes from our perceptions of our status. So in a sense, this is this is unavoidable. We know that wherever you look in the world, whatever populations, people are relative. How they think they're doing in life, not just in finance, but on all sorts of other scales, depends on how big the, the pond is that you're swimming in. And in many cases, you know, it's just, it's nicer to be a a big fish in a smaller pond rather than a small fish in a a medium-sized fish in a bigger pond. And how we draw the the boundaries around those who we compare ourselves to makes a huge difference. And that's why it's unavoidable, but nonetheless, there are things we can do to make it less harmful to us. So we can choose how far we look away from ourselves in our point of comparison. Now, I might think, well, there's absolutely... No point at all in me including Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk in my point of comparison as to whether I'm miserable or satisfied with my financial situation. They are so far away. That's not the pond I want to swim in. I don't want to swim in the Atlantic. And I think we have some degree of control over how strongly we look for people to compare ourselves to, how far we cast our net. And I think we, you know, we we can choose to be more satisfied with our lot than we are by mindful attention paying, by you know trying to counteract our natural tendency to feel disgruntled whenever we see anyone walk past us with a bigger something. I think you were hinting a little earlier on that it can actually be quite motivating to compare yourself to others. So it doesn't have to leave you feeling negative about yourself. It can be maybe inspiring. It's a two-edged sword. Comparing yourself to others, particularly if the others are too far ahead of you on something. It's just going to be demotivating and dispiriting. On the other hand, if you're only ever the best at something, you know, see this if you've got if you've got kids, you know, if your kid happens to be quite good at one thing and not so good at another thing, what you don't want is for the thing they're good at, they stop trying because they go, well, I'm just naturally good. I'm already better than everyone else who's you know, around me. And the thing that I'm not good at, they stop trying because they think, oh, well, I'm never going to get there. So there's a sweet spot. There's a sort of zone of comfort, if you like. Things that comparing ourselves to others where they're out of our reach, out of our attainment, the goals that are too far ahead can be demotivating. But we need some people to challenge us. We need some people to push us. And it's, it's again, it's about almost trying to curate the people that you look for and the people that you can compare to. It's possibly worth saying that, you know, like many of the things that, that we speak about, there is an aspect of personality to this. Some people are just naturally more comparers and some people are less. 
And we do see this in financial performance, and it makes a huge difference to questions about, well, how much do I use a benchmark to judge my performance or not? So I'll give you a, a simple example. Imagine, imagine you've had a, a good year and your portfolio has gone up 10%. And you think, wow, okay, I'm 10% richer than I was at the beginning of the year. That's great. But then you notice that the markets around you have gone up by 15% or your friend has gone up by 15%. Now, are you the sort of person who places more weight on the, hey, I'm up 10, that's great, uh, and you're happy? Or are you on more of the sort of person who goes, ooh, I'm minus five compared to this other, therefore I'm miserable. And we do find that some people are more naturally the plus 10 people and some people are more naturally the minus five kind of, kind of person. So knowing where you are as an individual might indicate how much attention you need to pay to trying to avoid the comparison to others. That is really interesting because we tend to think about this comparing yourself to others in terms of spending and, you know, propensity to overspend. And if you're always sort of looking at somebody who has the next nicest thing, the lovely jacket or the nice shoes or the Tesla, that might encourage you to spend too much. And I hadn't really thought about it in terms of comparing how you invest, because, of course, all you have is the benchmark. Well, maybe you talk about these things with your friends, but generally speaking, we don't really talk about how our investments have performed over the year, do we? But we can see visual signs of people's wealth. I think both things, maybe deal with the benchmark story first. Most of the most prominent benchmarks are equities. Here's how the S&P 500 have done, or here's how the, you know, the FTSE 100 has done. That's 100% equity. And if you are in a sensible, diversified portfolio across multiple asset classes that suits your risk profile, you should be underperforming a benchmark if the benchmark is just how's the stock market doing. It'd be foolish not to be in something that's underperforming the benchmark most of the time. And yes, if that makes us feel anxious, it might lead us to start taking these gambles, to start moving into undiversified investments, to start pitching ourselves at Bitcoin ETFs or whatever it may be. The issue potentially with friends and comparisons that aren't a benchmark that looks at the whole market is the benchmarks that we tend to get from conversations with others or from media stories are already cherry picked for success. Whilst we might not talk to our friends a great deal about how our whole portfolio is doing or how our wealth is doing, what you will find is that if they happen to have done very well at one, you know, one thing worked out very well, that's a good story to tell at the dinner party or that's a good you know, story to tell on a on a Saturday afternoon. So your view of how others are doing through anecdote and story and what you get from the media often is wildly exaggerated compared to how they're doing across their whole portfolio. And we need to be very careful when we compare ourselves to others not to be chasing the bling that we see and thinking about actually how's their, their whole situation. And I think that applies to spending as well as to performance. You know, if someone comes along with a flashy watch uh, and you think, oh, they must be doing magnificently, but you don't know you don't know what else they they're scrimping on in order to, to to afford the bling on their wrist. So it's the same visibility issue that people you know constantly sort of say on Instagram. Everybody's filtering out the bad stuff from their lives, and people do the same thing when talking about money or when choosing what outward signs of wealth to demonstrate. So what we need really is some sort of honest comparison. But of course, that's never going to happen, is it, in a world where we all sort of want to outdo each other a little bit? That's in, at least in investing, is the real value of a, of a proper index, of a proper benchmark, because it's the only real honest comparison where you go, 
I'm going to compare myself to something that has no human skill in it. This thing hasn't been curated looking backwards and I go, well, I'm just going to pick out the, the things that did well last year, the Tesla, the, you know, the Apple, etc., and compare myself to that because that's a surefire route to misery if you compare yourself only against winners the whole time. And for most of investing, we're actually quite lucky that we can form a benchmark that goes, well, what if I had just randomly picked a little bit of everything? assuming that I, I had no crystal ball, which of course we don't. And let me see how I'm doing, or indeed how my investment advisor or how my investment manager is doing relative to how a dart throwing monkey might have done if they had just randomly bought a little bit of everything out there. So having a benchmark is actually very valuable, but we do need to realize that the right benchmark for us to use is not the stock market. It is the stock market mixed with a sensible bit of cash, mixed with a sensible bit of bonds. And very often, these are not the benchmarks that are presented to us. So we're, we're lucky in being able to have indices, and we should use those indices. Just make sure you pick the one that's right for you, not the one that you're naturally going to feel miserable about most of the time, because you're being sensible, and that means you're going to be underperforming. And how do you know which is the right one for you? So what you're saying is that there is an element of personal selection, like you're choosing from a menu almost, which is the one that you like, which is the one based on how you're feeling, what you know, what you want to do and what you want to achieve. But I think I would find that quite difficult. The most important thing is getting the risk level right. And so if you were to say, I have decided that I am a moderate risk investor and you know, we can talk about where and how you should come to that decision. But if you're a moderate risk investor, you can then establish, well, what is the asset allocation that delivers that risk level? And maybe it's very, very simple. You've got a moderate risk investor is a, for the long term, 60% equities, 40% bonds. And we just pick two indices. We pick a broad equity index like the MSCI World, Total World Stock Markets Index. And we pick a, a broad bond index that's in your home currency. Now you can create your own benchmark that is just simply 40% of that, plus 60% of that, and I compare myself to that thing because I know its risk level is about right, and I might be doing other things around that. I'm not just buying the index, but it's it's a signal to me as to whether I, or indeed my investment manager, is adding any value in this process or is in fact detracting uh, from value. So I think we can get to personal benchmarks quite quickly and easily, but it does take a bit of work because... You can't open the newspaper and there's, there is Becky's benchmark laid out for you that you can suddenly download and go, well, how have I done compared to that? And, and I think the fault of our industry often is it uses the wrong benchmark, but it also often forces people to compare their performance against a benchmark over far too short a time period. So there's very little point in comparing your portfolio to a benchmark over any period less than definitely less than a year, but I'd say, you know, three years is where you should be really comparing yourself to because otherwise you're just focused on things that can be happen that are absolutely nothing to do with your skill or whether you're in the right portfolio or not. It's because in the short term, stuff happens and you can be in exactly the right portfolio and still outperform or underperform a benchmark dramatically. You're reminding me of what I say to my son when he goes to swimming and somebody swims faster than him in a race. And I say to him, well, no, you, you know, your race is against yourself and you're just trying to improve your personal best. And I wonder if that is a challenge because there's this expectation as soon as we set a target or a benchmark or that we will do better than that in the subsequent years and we'll do better and better each time as we hone our technique or our 
benchmark selection and that's unrealistic anyway isn't it over any time period really it is in many things in investing particularly i would say um trying to constantly become a better investor even if you succeed the amount by which you're likely to reliably improve your performance over long periods of time is relatively small. I think the work that you should put in in being better at your finances shouldn't really be about investing. It should be, have I structured my finances well? Am I controlling my spending? Am I maintaining my portfolio and rebalancing it? It's, it's following the processes and the procedures, not treating it as a destination, but treating it as a, as a journey. So there are definitely things that all of us can do better in managing our finances, but trying to beat a benchmark, even a sensible one, is probably one of the least valuable things you can put your attention in trying to achieve. We could get to a place where we're trying to outdo each other on how well we're managing our finances and how well we're managing our own expectations, but I somehow doubt that. In terms of um, spending and comparing our outward signs of wealth with others, I mean, you mentioned about setting boundaries and that's really helpful, but I couldn't help but notice it's Talk Money Week this week. It won't be by the time this podcast is broadcast, but is there something around having more honest conversations with people that could be helpful. So we're not constantly looking for the signs. We're actually able to talk to each other about these things. I think that is absolutely true. And we do find ourselves in this constant quest to compare ourselves to others in sometimes an arms race for the the visible conspicuous consumption items. Now, I think one of the most interesting things about this from a behavioral perspective is that when you look at what seems to make people reliably happy or unhappy in what they spend their money on, spending your money on things, particularly things where you're in an arms race against others and then they're going to come out and get a nicer version of whatever you've just got, really doesn't seem to make people happy for very long. So this whole notion of retail therapy, I'll go out and buy a lot of stuff, might have a very short-term effect on boosting your sense of happiness or well-being, but it is very short-term. It doesn't seem to do very much. Much, much, much more reliable are two other things. And I think they're both very revealing. One is if you want to be happier, spend your money on experiences, not on things. Spend your money on going out for the day or on a holiday with your family or going out to dinner with your friends or going to something new. Experiences much, much more reliably make us happy than things. And the more we can all acknowledge that to each other and consciously start to gear our spending behavior towards that, that not only makes us happier, it also provides the social glue that makes us all happier in the long run. And, you know, spending time with friends and family beyond the pure instrument of this is a way of spending money that makes me happy. It has all sorts of other side benefits on our emotional health and our social health as well. The other one that's really interesting is it turns out that spending money on other people actually has a greater effect on your happiness than spending money on yourself. And there are some wonderful experiments that have been done on this where you know, psychologists have given people in an experimental context, two groups of people, one of them, they say, here is $20, go and buy something for yourself. And you have to, by the end of the day, you have to come back and show me that you have bought something for yourself with this $20. And other people are given $20 and they say, go and, go and buy something for someone else. Go and do something nice for someone else. And incontrovertibly, the people who report being more satisfied or more happy from that experience are the people who've done something for someone else. So this, of course, links us back into all of the questions of the emotional returns, potentially of impact investing and, and environmental ESG investing, but also in spending 
you know, the, this notion that buying the better car or buying the better wristwatch or buying the smarter pair of trainers is going to make you happy it just seems to be complete nonsense. Spend money on time and experiences with others and spend money on others, gifts for others, gifts to charity. These actually genuinely seem to make us psychologically more happy, more resilient and improve our own well-being. It's an interesting that you could say, well, then is your giving money away, is it, is it a selfish thing? Well, it, it can be both, right? There's no reason why I can't feel good about things I'm doing for other people. And weirdly, this, this is where the double-edged sword of our social psychology comes from. The mere fact that we are social animals mean that we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. But also the fact that we as humans are social animals means that doing things for others and time in a social setting is some of the most valuable time that we can have and some of the most valuable ways of spending our money. I mean, I feel like this is starting to happen. This might be me being optimistic, but I do feel like there is an increased value on experiences and people are showing greater appreciation for the benefits of giving. But perhaps it's not enough to tip the balance over from that still very strong desire for the next best iPhone and I keep bringing it back to my children because I had a, a conversation with my 10 year old the other day about this constant newness and wanting and it feels like it's something that very early on in life we just want stuff and maybe as we get older we start to appreciate those other things um, I'm finding it very difficult to work out how to encourage my children to appreciate particularly as we approach Christmas to appreciate the experiences rather than the gifts. Do you think it's something that comes with age? I think perhaps it does. The thing that I always find most useful with the individual items and the things that, that kids want is just to give them a pause point. You know, go, well, I know you want it, but you, you desperately crave it right now. Let's think about it. And if in a day or a week you still want it, then we can think about getting it. And quite honestly, whenever I've tried this with my children, 95% of it goes away once they've had an, you know, an hour in between seeing it in the shop and you know, a little bit of space there. So I think a lot of this is related to impulsivity and related to our ability to step away and think about things in the broader context. I, mean, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who was saying her, her somewhat older daughter, teenage daughter, was you know, wondering whether to delay studies in order to get a job. And she used a phrase I thought was wonderful, which is, um, they need money for all those things they don't need. <laughs> and, you know, we do end up then postponing potentially education in order to earn money for the things that aren't going to make us happy. And, and that spiral comes, comes round and round. I don't know. I, th I think when you're younger, perhaps you take the experience thing for granted. Maybe there's less of a perception that experience, experiences actually do cost money because, you know, the things we see on the shelves, it's obvious to us that they cost money. But if, a day away from your, with your family... Maybe uh, kids, particularly younger ones, aren't assimilating. Well, that costs transport costs and all of the food that you're eating there doesn't feel like a tangible amount in the same way as the amount of money that you hand over for a thing. So maybe it's, it's just a question of the fact that in one case, the spending is more visceral and obvious than in the other case. And they think, well, the experiences really do, they, they come for free, don't they? Yeah, the peak stuff argument. I wonder if now we actually might be tipping into a place where we compare our spending on experiences with the spending of others on experiences via social media. And actually, this is just, you know, yes, the experiences are lovely, but it's yet another way to compare yourself, another trap to fall into. Yeah, I agree. If the experience is for experience sake and for the time you spend with people and for the memories it brings, 
that is definitely going to enhance your emotional well-being. If the experience is just so that you can curate one more show-off moment on social media, then I think you're probably doing it for the wrong reasons. And you're also probably not going to get the other benefits out of it along the way, you know, because all you're doing is focusing on curating the moment rather than living the moment. I think that's a great note to end on. And inevitably, this went down a sort of pre-Christmas route. And uh, you can probably tell I'm thinking about children's Christmas lists and what to take off them and what to leave on. But you're quite right. It's very difficult to get them to change their focus away from the gifts and presents. By the way, one thing I think I'm going to try this year with my kids is if you gift them money that they can then gift onto others. So, you know, you actually make the experience of giving, of choosing a charity or choosing something to donate to, but you treat that as a gift to them. So one of one of my presents to you is I'm going to allow you to do something good. I think that might have a beneficial effect. You know, it's one more material gift off the list and you're giving them both an experience and a sense of giving in return. So I, I don't know, I just throw it out there because I heard some friends of mine tried that last Christmas and said it was very successful. Uh, so I think I'm going to give it a whirl this time. Fantastic. I'm definitely going to give that a whirl this year. Greg, thank you so much yet again. And please do like and subscribe the Interactive Investor podcast below. Thank you. Thank you.